Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, former Canadian diplomat in Beijing, Charles Burton, asks, what is this government doing to protect Canada's sovereignty? BC target shooter Don Dealey is concerned about her sport being cancelled by the feds. And Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman talks healthcare frustrations, the still-open policing issue, and a massive tax hike. So... Let's get started. Here's a quote from an article in the Globe and Mail the other day written by our next guest. We know that a foreign regime is running a disinformation campaign to try to sabotage Canadian elections. And we know from a CSIS report that donors who contribute to Canadian political candidates favored by Beijing have been quietly and illegally reimbursed for the portion not covered by a federal tax credit. These sorts of activities, coordinated by a hostile power, absolutely should not be tolerated. The RCMP should long ago been dispatched into action, but we have seen nothing. The article was entitled, What is this government doing to protect Canada's sovereignty against China? The author of the piece, a good friend of this program, always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Charles Burton, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, a former diplomat at our embassy in Beijing, and author of said piece in the Globe and Mail. Charles, good morning, sir. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. Uh, We have talked about this, uh, you and I, on this program a number of times as it has been going on. uh, And we go back on this one a couple of years, too, Charles. So uh, you, in in your recent piece, the Globe and Mail has been doing some outstanding work on the China file lately, uh, particularly having access to some information provided to them by CSIS. And I'll get into how they managed to get that information in a little bit. But I suppose what's most baffling to most Canadian, Charles, is that as more and more layers of the onion get peeled back, the government seems to want to retreat rather than attack. What's going on? Yeah, this is a a big concern. I mean, you would have thought a scheme for a foreign government to make contributions to political campaigns that they favor. I mean, uh, you know, mostly liberal candidates, but there are a couple of conservatives in the list that you would have thought that this kind of scheme where, uh, you know, people of Chinese origin in Canada, Canadian citizens, donate to a political party, fine. But then uh, they take their tax receipt uh, to, you know, some Chinese uh, agency. I don't know if it's run out of one of those police stations Mm. or Confucius Institute or, or you know, a China-backed Chinese association. And the Chinese government reimburses them for for the amount that they didn't get off their tax. I mean, that's, you know, definitely fraud. And you would have thought that everybody involved should be investigated by the RCMP and given a due process of law in a court and, you know, dealt with in accordance with law. It doesn't seem to be um, very politically controversial or anything that, that that would be something the RCMP would do in the case of electoral financing fraud. But uh, we haven't seen that at all, even though CSIS has evidently highlighted this to our government, which I think, you know, sort of gives some credibility to the stuff we've been talking about, as you say, for the past couple of years, because it's coming out of our 
Security Intelligence Service, which suggests that, you know, we're not just speculating here. This is really going on. And this is information that they would have passed on to federal officials as it became available to them. Again, the federal officials, once they have received said information, did nothing about it. But let's just talk for a second, if you don't mind, about how CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, uh, saw fit or people within the organization saw fit to share some of this information with the media uh, because it was, was it simply frustration? You, you talk about a split inside Ottawa between a concerned security agency and a political center that may be too fearful of economic retaliation to, by China to do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could certainly, if I was a thesis officer who had spent you know, many years working on the China file, had sent extensive um, reports to the government about, you know, even candidates who appear to be in the pocket of a foreign power and saw absolutely nothing done about it, that I guess, you know, one would make a calculation that that uh, they should provide this information to, to make it publicly known through the Security of Information Act. I mean, there are provisions in that act if um, you know, if the public good is is exceeded, that will save them from from possible incarceration if they're found out to be the source of of this information. But you know, it's a very risky thing to do, and and I believe that the the penalty for for um, you know violating your commitment to secrecy is 14 years in prison. So you know, these people are pretty courageous. Uh, if this is what's been going on. Of course, the CSIS reports have also been shared to other intelligence agencies in the Five Eyes and beyond. Right. So it's possible that, that the information did not originate from a Canadian source. But, you know, it seems most likely that that uh, that the Globe and Mail reporters, uh, Bob Fife and Steve Chase, did get it from, from CSIS officers who are just at wit's end over this situation. Well, and we're going to talk to Michael Cooper, who's a conservative MP from Alberta in our next hour. And Michael wrote a piece in the National Post, perhaps you saw it the other day, basically talking about the foreign inter- election interference. And there's no clear line of defense. There are a few uh, senior former bureaucrats, uh, the former ch- chief uh, of the uh, Privy Council, clerk of the Privy Council is one of them. There are some senior bureaucrats in charge of uh, filtering the information receiving the information and disseminating it, uh, but there doesn't seem to be anybody actually doing anything, let alone being actually in charge. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, and, and we don't have evidence that this committee of, you know, senior civil servants and others actually had access to the classified CSIS reports that, you know, may have gone through to the prime minister's office. We don't know if the prime minister saw them or was apprised of them. And if he wasn't, that would be another, you know, another thing that should be looked into. Sure. And I, and I think that, you know, the, the parliamentarians want more access to information, but they are being uh, blocked by by the uh, liberal members and and the NDP members uh, with regard to to demanding that 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 the, that the information that the Globe and Mail has seen should be made available to parliamentarians. I think, you know, this is in general a serious problem that our intelligence agency doesn't seem to be as forthcoming about what they know as the counterpart agencies in places like Britain, Australia, and the U.S. And when they are called to give evidence in Parliament, you you know, again, in other words, the head of CSIS and the head of CSE and other 
senior people in, in RCMP and other agencies have appeared before the Common Special Committee on yep. Canada-China Relations and before Mr. Coop, the, the, the committee that Mr. Cooper has been so ably participating in, the, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee. But, you know, every time you ask them for a specific, they say, oh, uh, sorry, we can't tell you because, you know, that would reveal our operational methods. I'm really wondering how much operations they've been doing um, and what they're holding back from us. But, uh, you know, up to now, bringing them into Parliament doesn't seem to be giving us much answers. Charles, you mentioned our Five Eyes Global Partners, and we were, in fact, excluded from the AUKUS agreement with the UK and Australia uh, recently because uh, I, I think just not to, we're not trustworthy enough to be included in some of those uh, agreements and arrangements. But is it possible that our Five Eyes partners, particularly the Aussies and the Yanks, are uh, perhaps leaning on Ottawa through back channels, etc., to get something done? It's gone well beyond our borders and it's become painfully obvious to some of our allies that our house is not in order. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that that's true. And when when Secretary of State Blinken was in Ottawa back in October, you know, we announced that we'd be having a, a, a strategic dialogue with the uh, U.S. on Indo-Pacific strategy, right. which suggests that the U.S. feels that there's some stuff they want to talk about with us on this. And I think that there is increasing pressure from the U.S. and our other allies to actually say what we will be doing differently with regard to this Indo-Pacific um, strategy statement, which you know, is largely aspirational and virtue signaling, but rather short on exactly what the government will be doing that will allow us to meet the challenge of China. I know that Congress has some hearings coming up uh, next month with regard to Indo-Pacific strategy and and where the allies stand on it. And I don't think that Canada will will come out of it well. I mean, you know, we had Minister Champagne talking about um, decoupling when he was in Washington, and then Minister Freeland talking about friendshoring when she was in Washington. Yeah. But then when they get back to Canada, they talk about the importance of continuing engagement with China. So, you know, we don't really know where our government stands and they seem to be making it ambiguous and i think our allies are getting increasingly fed up with us not putting it on the line and telling them straight exactly what we plan to do to collaborate with them in terms of of the international consensus that that china's international behavior is just unacceptable and we have to take measures to try and bring them into compliance with the international rules-based order. Absolutely. The last line of your piece, the most recent piece in the Globe and Mail, Charles, quote, if this interference goes unchecked and there are no criminal or diplomatic consequences, it will obviously embolden China to do much more of it. And that's the, that's the bottom line, isn't it? If, there, if there's no, no checks, then off you go. It, 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 it's almost encouraging. So I think, I mean, you know, China has a very large um, diplomatic cohort in Canada. You know, they have 146 people here. Japan has 46, India 35, yeah. UK 23. You know, obviously, they don't need that many diplomats. And I think it's reasonable to assume that, you know, a, a proportion of them, a significant proportion of them are engaged in the kind of activities that we're seeing reported by Sam Cooper of Global News and in the Globe and Mail. And so I think it's time for CSIS, who presumably knows who they are, to recommend to the government that, that those people should be sent back to Beijing and the agents that they're running in, 
in Canada should be brought before a court of law to be made accountable for these allegations. And, you know, that that's the only way that we can indicate to the Chinese regime that we are serious about this and that we're not going to simply allow them to carry on like this out of fear of economic retaliation or, you know, negative consequences for people in policy circles who may be beneficiaries of of, of something from the Chinese state that, you know, that we need to get to the bottom of by by getting a Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act that demands that people who have influence in the China policy process should be required to declare if they're recipients of, of money or other benefits from a foreign power. But so far, there's a lot of resistance to that in Ottawa, and I don't really see why anyone would would object to, to, to revealing if they've got money from foreign power. I mean, I just think that just makes good sense. Mr. Burton, thanks to people like you, sir, more and more of us across the country are becoming more and more painfully aware of what is going on right under our noses uh, and what has been going on and continues to go on as, as a foreign power, as you so eloquently put it in your piece, operates uh, against us. Hostile activity from a foreign power on Canadian soil. Millions of Canadians uh, up in arms may cost Ottawa to do something even if they don't want to. The, the piece in the Globe and Mail, friends, is what is this government doing to protect Canada's sovereignty against China? The author, Charles Burton. I commend it to your reading. It's an outstanding piece. Charles, as always, thanks for your, a little bit of your time on a weekend. It's great to have you back. Great to speak with you. I hope we can keep talking about this as it develops. Our next guest is a part of a group of target shooters across Canada worrying that the federal firearm bill will basically cancel their sport. Uh, it's a pleasure to say good morning to Don Dealey, a BC target shooter who has just returned from the worlds in uh, Thailand. Don, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thanks. You're in Chilliwack. Uh, usually, if we're going to get snowy bits, it happens in the Fraser Valley before anywhere else. You got anything going on outside your place yet? Not yet, but it's it's really thinking about it. So I expect by the end of the day we'll have snow. Oh, no question about that. Apparently by around lunchtime or so is when it's going to start. So tell us a little bit about what you do, Don. As I said, you were just in Thailand competing in something called the <laughs> International Practical Shooting Confederation World Championships. You're a practical shooter. What is that? Well, Sterling, what it is, um, and we refer to it, I mean, that's a mouthful that you just said. So we refer to it as IPSIC for short. Okay. And and it is a uh, it is an organization that promotes shooting. Our our shooting sport basically involves. Uh, we loosely use the term running and gunning, and and I, I personally hate that term. But uh, we have courses of fire where we have stationary targets. We have targets that move. We have targets we have to move around to see. Uh, we lie down, we stand up, <clears throat> we go over and under obstacles and around obstacles. Hmm. And it is a sport that is uh, very heavily regulated. Uh, there are over 100 member nations in um, our community, uh, many, many, many tens of thousands of competitors all over the world. And uh, it's interesting to note for people who don't know that in addition to the firearms licensing regulations that we have to have like any other shooter in this country, right. we also have to obtain what's referred to as a black badge, which entails further instruction and further certification in order to be able to hold that. 
So the so, pro- we're bet- so we're vetted over and above. Yeah, exactly. And, and as if uh, uh, anyone who possesses any kind of uh, access to firearms in this country hasn't gone through any number of hoops. It's quite a process, Don, to 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 even get a license to buy a twenty-two for crying out loud. To say nothing of a handgun. Well, and that's and that's the thing. And 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 uh, I run into this all the time. Uh, where I'm, I'm speaking to people who who have no knowledge of the Firearms Act, and who are not familiar with what we go through in able in in order to obtain our licenses and our firearms. Sure. And it really it really is quite numbing, you know, mind numbing when you actually sit down and think about it, because we are some of the most heavily vetted and tracked individuals in the country. So let's talk a little bit about sport shooting. The prime minister many months ago said, quote, other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there's no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. And most people will go, yeah, okay." But then it's the definition of sport shooting. Uh, And basically what the, the government is hanging its hat on is the Olympic sport shooting. And that doesn't include your sport, does it? So what's the difference between what you do and what they do at the olympics well the olympics you have biathlon you have um uh target pistol mm-hmm. and you have shotgun the guns are completely different um in the olympics and i'm a little vague on some of the olympic details uh 22 caliber ammunition is um outside the shotguns 22 caliber ammunition is the only is the only ammo uh, used in Olympic sports. Uh, we use all varieties of pistol ammunition in our sport, uh, and you know it again. It 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 galls us because we are elite athletes too. We have world championships too. We right. train physically. We train on the ranges. I just got home from the range last night at like eleven thirty at night. And somehow we are not considered elite enough. There are about 5,000 IPSC shooters, competitive shooters in my sport in Canada right now. There's a handful of Olympic shooters. And I think that to draw that line between us and say one side is, is good and the other side is potentially criminal is so, so wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's also fairly safe to say, too, Don, that people who are Olympic shooters, many of them have come through your process uh, in order to perfect their skills. That is absolutely true. And the way things are going right now, we will have no way to grow our sport. Uh, If somebody comes to me and says, look, IPSC looks really fun. It looks really interesting. I want to develop my skills. Mm -hmm. And let let me reiterate that. Our sport is is so uh, laden with safety protocol. If I told you, I could I could sit here for the rest of the you know the rest of the day and, and tell you what our restrictions are, and you'd be you'd be shocked at, at how safe our our sport really is. Okay, I can't help somebody. I can say, look, I can take you to the range and I can show you, but I can't loan you a handgun. Right. I can't I can't transfer a handgun to you. Uh, I can't enable you in any other way, shape, or form to engage in this activity. So our sport is 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 looking at uh, a terminal situation right now if things don't change. Right. Well, again, this is this is a part of a gun control package being brought in by a government that is determined to impress the people in Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa 
very few of whom have any clue about guns at all. So if you're only 5,000 across the country, scattered across Canada, versus, oh, say, the population of the city of Toronto, uh, numerically, uh, your odds aren't really very good. So what can you do, Don, to to, uh, improve your odds in in terms of bringing the sport and its legitimacy to the attention of people who make decisions? We're trying really hard. Early uh, At the end of last year, uh, one of the NDP MPs, Alistair McGregor, made a very uh, impassioned plea to the House to look further into my sport. He had been up at the Victoria Range last summer. He had spent the weekend looking at a match, watching competitors shoot, and, and he came to the conclusion that, hey, you know, this sport really deserves some positive attention. Mm-hmm. And he brought that to the attention of the House, and and it kind of went nowhere. Our uh, public safety minister keeps saying that he's in conversation with experts and uh, stakeholders in the sports, but we're wondering who he's talking to because he's really not made a whole lot of noise in our direction, if any. And uh, for myself, the best thing I can do is just keep spreading positive information and saying, look, if you want to come to a range, if you want to come to a match and really see what we do and how we do it, I'm willing to take anybody with me anytime. Interesting stuff. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, is is there a website as well, Don, that you can commend to our listeners this morning that people can go to and just learn more about what target shooting is all about? Well, yes, there is. I'm just going to pull it up here. I pulled up all kinds of other stuff this morning, but um, but you can go to ipsicbc.com, which is ipscbc.com, and start from there. And that uh, that will give you an overview of what I do. If you want to go further than that, then there is ipsc.org which is the uh, website for Ipsic World. Right. And that will tell you about the distribution of our matches, what they entail, the level of competition that we compete in, where the matches are held, what the divisions are. It'll give you a rundown on exactly what it is that I do. And it's, it's not just getting out there flailing guns around and throwing ammo downrange for the, for the sake of hearing a gun go bang. It's right. a very, very strictly regulated uh, you know, and highly competitive sport. All right, so that's a good website, friends. It's IPSBC, IPSCBC, IPSC, IPSCBC.com. That's correct, yes. All right, it's a great website, too. Uh, thanks for this. Uh, good to talk to you, Don. Uh, I hope to have the opportunity to do it again. And uh, going to be very interesting to, now that we know a little bit more about what target shooting is all about. We're going to see exactly how close to cancellation you get and hopefully avoid that, uh, that fate. Thanks for doing this with us this morning. Anytime you want to talk, Sterling, I'm here. And anytime you want to go to the range, just let me know. Ah, that would be fun. I appreciate that. <laughs> thanks, Don. Thanks, Sterling. And the Surrey Board of Trade says the fact some very sick residents have to drive over bridges to get appropriate health care is unacceptable. This comes as the Board of Trade releases a report entitled Surrey's Hospital Needs, which finds services in the city to be severely insufficient. Here to talk more about their report is the president and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. A pleasure to welcome back Anita Huberman. Anita, good morning. 
Good morning. Well, let's talk about the, the health care frustration. we got a full plate here, Anita, and precious little time to get it all done because I want to talk about the policing situation and the tax increases, which are conveniently hand in glove. But let's talk about this health report that you just released, the Surrey's Hospital Needs. Talk to us about driving over bridges. What does that mean? It means that if you have a heart attack, a stroke, trauma, need specialty services for your child, you need to go to another hospital across the bridge in order to get served, uh, to have that heart attack surgery, for example. And so what we're asking the BC government is to refocus their budget and their investments in Surrey to ensure that we have the workforce and the infrastructure to perform heart attack surgery, Mm -hmm. uh, to perform uh, trauma services that are needed, to increase our maternity and ER beds, given that we're still growing at an explosive 1,200 to 1,400 people a month. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, the bridge, because, of course, I think we're talking in this case specifically when it comes to cardiac issues. We're talking about Royal Columbian across the Patello Bridge and just up the road in New Westminster. What about Surrey Memorial, uh, Anita? Is that not uh, supposed to be the, the regional big deal hospital for the, uh, the city of Surrey? Absolutely it is, but... Uh, There is no uh, funding or focus for those types of conditions to be treated. And so uh, I know even from personal experience, someone very close to me had a heart attack, assessed at Sir Memorial, great care, great service, uh, but they had to be put into an ambulance, be shipped to Royal Columbian, surgery performed. Uh, Imagine if you're stuck in traffic, if there's snow, if there's a natural disaster. Every single minute matters when you're being shipped from hospital to hospital, and it could lead to worse outcomes. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the, the what we know to be committed in terms of the provincial government. They're talking about the new hospital uh, to be in the Cloverdale area. Is that going to be the kind of facility that will have the, the capability that Royal Columbian now does exclusively to be able to look after Surrey residents? No, it will not. Uh, Certainly, we welcome the investment in Surrey by the BC government. It's going to have a state-of-the-art cancer care facility, uh, cancer care very important in our region, but it will not serve and not perform surgeries or provide services for heart attack, strokes, trauma, or specialty pediatric services. Mm. So let's talk about why, because uh, there are at least nine seats in the British Columbia legislature held and represented by Surrey MLAs. That's a pretty significant degree of clout internally in terms of a caucus and the ability to exert pressure. Why hasn't there been uh, more of a commitment to the kind of facility you point to, especially given the growth curve that Surrey is currently on? What we've been told is through consultation and research by the B.C. government that these are the types of services uh, that need to be offered with the new hospital that's being built. Uh, But uh, what we're hearing, even uh, from physicians that are in Surrey Hospital, is we need to have the infrastructure, the ability to serve our residents within our city's borders. Sure. And so the B.C. government is saying that, uh, you know, where there's regional hospitals that can serve these types of conditions, such as Royal Columbian, which Mm -hmm. is amazing, uh, but it's over a bridge. 
Right. So let's uh, uh, do you have any sense at all? Uh, because you you in this report that you, you've just released, uh, Surrey's hospital needs, you find them to be uh, currently services to be severely insufficient. Uh, have you had any reaction, by the way, from uh, the provincial government at all with respect to the findings that you've released? Well, we heard uh, Minister Dick say that, yes, you know, uh, the Surrey Board of Trade is correct. Uh, yes, they've been left behind on health care investments. They're trying to fix that with the new uh, build of the new hospital right. in the Surrey area. And, uh, but really, apart from that, nothing else. We, are, we have set and asked for a meeting with the minister. We're waiting for a response. And, uh, you know, uh, we just need to have a, a collaborative discussion uh, to see, you know, what is going to be the right health care investment for our workforce for our economy right here in Surrey. Okay, I need to change gears because I only got a couple of minutes left and I want to talk about the tax increase that was introduced last Saturday afternoon when no one was looking, or so they thought. Uh, And that, of course, is tied hand in glove to the policing situation. We heard Mike Farnworth, the minister minister responsible, say in the legislature the other day, Anita, it's likely this is likely going to go on till the spring, whenever that may be in terms of his calendar. This is going to go on for a while. We don't know what the costs are. The Surrey Police Service chief says we need to do an audit. We need some numbers on the table. Linda Annis has been on this program saying without the numbers, we nobody knows what's going on. What's the Board of Trade take on the policing situation slash tax increase? Well, either way, uh, whatever the B.C. government decides, the, the burden of taxation is going to be on the business community. Uh, you know, it's 66% of taxation is what businesses pay. And uh, what was announced last Saturday during a family day weekend mm-hmm. was that uh, there was no clear answer as to what businesses would pay. Uh, every industrial class is different. We have the greatest number of manufacturers in British Columbia. Some of them have faced, such as in the forestry sector, as high as 150% tax increase in the past three years each year. That's not sustainable to be in business. It's really hard to be an entrepreneur these days. Mm-hmm. And so does, does in terms of the policing situation, you, 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 is there a decision in terms of the Board of Trade? Do you have an opinion on this or just simply let's get on with it, get it over with and make a decision for crying out loud? Our longstanding position has been to keep the RCMP in Surrey, and uh, we need wraparound infrastructure. Again, infrastructure lacking in Surrey by the B.C. government, the federal government, to help our youth, mental health needs, drug addiction. Uh, We also need judicial accountability to remove prolific offenders off of the streets. Mm -hmm. It's not about changing the badge. It's about providing the resources that a police force needs. And uh, are you satisfied in terms of the numbers that there seems to be a great deal of pressure mounting to just put the numbers, be they what they are on the table? So taxpayers who are being asked now to cough up even more, at least have a clue what they're paying for. We need to have a very simple budget presented to residents to say these are the costs. This is why. Um, There's been so much back and forth about, you know, it's going to cost this much. It's going to cost that. Mm -hmm. And residents, businesses uh, are confused, absolutely. But here we are. 
Uh, it's almost March. Uh, we need to make economic decisions uh, with this city budget. And uh, now we're hearing by the B.C. government that we remain economic hostages, so to speak, uh, because we don't know what the costs are going to be either way uh, in terms of uh, what our pu- public safety infrastructure is going to be. Mm-hmm. As my old uh, colleague here on the radio station, Peter Warren, used to say a lot, Get on with it. Anita Huberman, thanks very much for this. A pleasure to speak to you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.